Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, June 8th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Republicans are battling the FBI again, demanding a document in their Biden family investigation. If you look at the standard that they put in place for Donald Trump, there was zero evidence, in fact, forged evidence at some points and they pursued it. So why not pursue this? I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A total about face in the world of golf makes headlines as opponents of an international merger reel over a high dollar deal that brings an American tour together with Saudi funding. A lot of these players ended up losing a lot of money by pledging loyalty to the PGA Tour only to have the tour turn around and cut a blood money deal with the same people that they excoriated in the past. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. House Republicans are no longer in conflict with the head of the FBI in a showdown over a document they've been demanding to see in their investigation into President Biden and his family's business dealings. And here's why they're backing down today. Late last night, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer scrapped plans to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. Comer's about face comes after the FBI agreed to let all members of the Oversight Committee review that FBI document alleging then-Vice President Biden accepted a large bribe. That is Fox's Lucas Tomlinson. Now, earlier this week, Director Ray had only allowed the leaders of the House Oversight Committee view the documents. It suggests a pattern of bribery where payments would be made through shell accounts and multiple banks. There's a term for that. It's called money laundering. That's Oversight Committee Chair Republican Congressman James Comer after he viewed that document. FBI officials confirmed that the unclassified FBI-generated record has not been disproven and is currently being used in an ongoing investigation. The committee's top Democrat, Congressman Jamie Raskin, also saw the document and has a much different take. Not only were there no criminal charges, there was no escalation of the FBI's investigation that was ordered by Scott Brady or by Attorney General William Barr. They all signed off on ending that investigation. Though attorney, the former Attorney General William Barr disputes that. The White House calls this all a Republican stunt to spread innuendo. Now, before that compromise late last night that canceled today's House hearing on contempt, we talked to former Congressman Jason Chaffetz. The case that Chairman Comer, and I've had his job in the past, is a strong one. It's one of the stronger ones I've seen. Chaffetz is now a Fox News contributor, host of the Jason in the House podcast. They want a very specific file because they've had a whistleblower who's come forward and said, I know about this document, I know this allegation, but the FBI has not been pursuing it. And it's an unclassified document. That is key. If it was about sources and methods, if it was classified, that's a whole different fight. But the idea that it's 
non-classified and it's one document, that makes the case much stronger. Now, obviously, Raskin is a Democrat. He says, look, there was really nothing to this. There was no deep investigation. And he said, even if there was, and it's an open investigation, it's all the more reason not to give the document forward because it's part of a probe that you wouldn't want made public if it's still under investigation. Well, that feeds into the argument that the Republicans have made is that there was not a deep investigation and that they're not pursuing it. If you look at the standard that they put in place for Donald Trump, there was zero evidence, in fact, forged evidence at some points, and they pursued it. So why not pursue this? And if you didn't pursue it, what's the harm? And if you think it's a closed investigation, all the more case to go ahead and release it. Okay. Let's say they go forward and they get their contempt of Congress and they vote. Then what? I mean, you've gone through this before. Back when you were the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, you went after the attorney general at the time, Eric Holder, and you're fast and furious. The investigation into, uh, at the time, right, there was guns that got into drug cartels and an American died, right? Yeah. And this is the problem. I've talked about this with Trey Gowdy, my former colleague uh, there in the House, Your ability to enforce a subpoena is only as strong as your ability to enforce your subpoena. And the problem is, if you hold them in contempt, if you go to enforce a subpoena, you have to rely on the Department of Justice to do that. Will they prosecute their own? No, they won't. And this is the fundamental problem. Until Congress develops a backbone and says, we are a co-equal branch of government, we are the people's house, the people paid for this? Because the informant made hundreds of thousands of dollars and is deemed highly credible by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Why can't we see this document? It probably won't see the light of day until Speaker McCarthy gets a backbone with the rest of the House Republicans and says, we're going to take the matter into our own hands. Short of that, if Ray wants to dig in his heels, he may get a slap on the wrist with a contempt charge, but, you know... He'll be after Eric Holder, and nothing happened to Holder either. Nothing happened, right? You went after him, and it didn't matter. It was on his permanent record, but I don't think he even spends two seconds worrying about that on a day-to-day basis. How successful do you think Republicans have been so far investigating President Biden and his family and the business dealing so far? I'm highly impressed. They didn't get started until January because there was the fight over who was going to be the speaker and consequently who was going to be the committee chairs. So you figure we're in June, and they only started in January. That's pretty impressive. It always takes longer than anybody wants it to, but I think they're over the target, and you can usually tell that by how hard they're pressing back. Well, they're not getting much play in the mainstream media on it, are they? I mean, there was a Biden whistleblower who was on some of the network, was on one of the networks, but that was in the IRS uh, case involving the investigation into Hunter Biden. But we're not getting a lot. When the Republicans held their news conference to put out evidence against the president, it was dismissed pretty much as they they didn't really tie anything to President Biden. Well, the lack of intellectual curiosity by the traditional media is evidence, I think, and reaffirms the public's concern that they are just partisans and that all they want to do is move the Democratic agenda forward because any breath of Donald Trump doing anything and it's top of the fold on the newspapers and it's, you know, blasted out in perpetuity. And then you have real evidence of Biden family members enriching themselves based on the vice president's work. And you have emails and voicemails and text messages and a computer, a laptop. 
And you're right. It's relatively silent on these other networks. They never cover this. But shame on them. You know, and then they go out and say, well, democracy dies in darkness. And that's just laughable at this point because they don't call balls and strikes based on the pitch that's being thrown. They've already called that's going to be a strikeout or that's going to be a walk. This is what frustrates, I think, the American people. You have a new book, The Puppeteers, The People Who Control, The People Who Control America. This goes along with your prior book, Deep State, right? Yeah. You're talking about, and I I like how in the book you call it Team A versus Team B. And Team A, the 535 members of Congress, right? 100 senators, 435 members of the House. And as you point out, the average person only gets to vote for three of them. There are two senators and their representative, and they rarely ever get access to them as it is. Yeah. Team B is what? Well, it's the bureaucracy and it's the administrative state. There are 2.2 million federal employees. They're spending about $6 trillion. When we have the budget fights like we did with the debt ceiling a, a weeks ago, that was only about less than 10% of the budget. Most of government runs on mandatory programmatic spending. It's not just Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. There are hundreds of other programs that run just like that, and Congress never touches them. They don't do oversight. They don't do the appropriations. And it's the bureaucrats that run it. They're unelected and unaccountable. And you allege that they're left-leaning. Oh, clearly. That the Democrats have successfully infiltrated this federal bureaucracy. Yeah, we show some statistics. Some of the departments and agencies, the federal employees, you look at their donation records, 95-plus percent of them will be to Democrats. Some departments and agencies, it's 100 percent. Yeah, and you talk a lot in the early part of the book about uh, ESG, which is this sort of a, uh, a the, the change in the culture for investments to focus less on capitalism and more on governance, on the environment, climate change, right? Yeah. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and ESG, environmental social governance. These are the principles and the quote-unquote stakeholders that the Democrats are trying to implement. They tried for the Green New Deal. Nobody was going to vote for that. They knew it. So they changed it. And they passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, they put aside $370 billion in that bill for a climate fund that's run by John Podesta. I think he's one of the puppeteers in this. $370 billion is a lot of money to go out and implement these types of things. And these money managers like BlackRock and Larry Fink, they say out loud, we are trying to do this, not to, to maximize the rate of return, not to maximize the, the um, prosperity in this country, but to try to implement DEI and ESG. And the goal there is to trickle that down into corporate boardrooms, right? Oh, yeah. If you look at the S&P 500, um, BlackRock owns at least 5% on more than 98% of the companies. And they take these trillions of dollars and they use it and they use proxy voting, government employees, retirement funds, teachers union retirement funds. Maybe your 401k is managed by BlackRock or Vanguard or one of these big mammoth groups. They take your vote as a shareholder. You don't vote it. They vote it through proxy voting. And that's how they're able to go into these corporations, change the board of directors, change resolutions, and you're oblivious to it, even though it's your money. 
surveillance is something else you go yeah. into the book in great detail about. And, and part of it is your concern about the move to have the biggest threat in America being domestic extremism. You take issue with that. The Department of Justice believes that white supremacy is the single biggest threat to the United States. They, and, they say they have data to back it up. And they don't. The puppeteers explains and articulates and demonstrates how they do those statistics. And they we cite some of the cases where they think that's white supremacy and domestic terrorism types of activities. And look, where it's there, go fight it. But is it really, really the number one threat? I argue in the Puppeteer's book that they need this in place in utter order to justify more control, more manipulation. You write all these things in the book that are going wrong, and at the end you have answers. Like, How would we change the situation where you have unelected people making these decisions? Um, first of all, I believe in term limits for elected officials. I think we need term limits actually on the federal bureaucrats. When a new president comes on board, the political appointees need to be blown out. You also need to starve the beast. If you continue to fund it at $6 trillion, where nearly one out of every $5 in this country is spent, is spent by the federal government, you're going to continue to have this problem. But most of the solutions probably come at the state level. Former Congressman Jason Chaffetz, host of the Jason in the House podcast, Fox News contributor, author of The Puppeteers, the new book, The People Who Control, The People Who Control America. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. This week, the Professional Golfers Association agreed to a merger with the Saudi-backed Live Golf. This week, last year, the commissioner of the PGA Golf Tour was asked about Liv, and Jay Monahan rejected the Saudi venture, as multiple golfers like Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, and Brooks Kepa signed up with Liv. Monahan told CBS last June at the Canadian Open that his heart was with the families of 9-11 victims who strongly opposed Liv, as many of the terrorist hijackers were Saudi. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? Mickelson, who'd criticized the PGA as greedy before signing a $200 million contract with Liv, defended his decision last May and said he didn't defend the Saudi Kingdom's human rights violations. I've also seen the good that the game of golf has done throughout history, and I believe that Liv Golf is going to do a lot of good for the game as well. When the PGA officially announced it would merge with Liv, Mickelson said it was an awesome day, but was preferring to lay low, as he put it to the New York Post. Commissioner Monaghan said he understands why he's being called a hypocrite. Rory McIlroy, one of the golf stars who stuck by PGA's side through it all, said he felt like a sacrificial lamb, but that he's resigned to it. He sees what's happened in other sports, and he said, quote, it's very hard to keep up with people that have more money than anyone else. The national chair of the 9-11 Families United Group, Terry Strada, told Fox News this merger was a gut punch. And I thought, oh, my God, the Saudis have infiltrated professional golf just like they infiltrated our airspace 
on September 11th. Strata said Monaghan is giving them a bigger platform for their, quote, sports washing. The Live Golf Tour is backed by the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund and controlled by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And this deal puts Live, PGA, and DP World Tour all into one company that doesn't yet have an official name. I think it's pretty simple, Jessica. I think it was always about the money. I wrote that a year ago when the PGA Tour tried to turn this into some sort of morality play. Ian O'Connor is a four-time New York Times bestselling author and sports writer. And embraced 9-11 families and others who were very concerned with the atrocious human rights record of uh, the Saudi government. And it was never about that. The PGA Tour only saw live as competition that needed to be crushed because they wanted to protect their own bottom line. And that was proven to be the case this week. After all the things that Commissioner Jay Monahan and others said about the PGA Tour players who took the live money, some of it big money, like Phil Mickelson, who reported $200 million, and then to turn around and make the same kind of deal for bigger money with the uh, the same governors of the uh, public investment fund is really, I've been covering sports mostly in the New York area for about 37 years. I've never seen anything as hypocritical as I saw this week. Mm. So I'm not sure how the commissioner, Jay Monahan stays in his job. The players, his players who pledge loyalty to him and the PGA Tour are furious with him and with this merger. And it's gonna be very interesting to see how this all plays out in the coming months. Yeah, up until this week, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan had said some pretty stark things against the Saudis and Liv, and he, he said that we would never associate with them. And as you just noted, it did take some players, notable players, by surprise. It doesn't sound like for them this was handled with grace. Have you spoken with any of those players? Have you read their reactions? I have and I have. And there is a sense, a widespread sense of betrayal. And some of these players, by the way, Ricky Fowler was offered a reported $75 million from Liv. Hideki Matsuama, uh, he was offered maybe $200 million. And so there are a lot of players. Tiger Woods, maybe a, a figure around $800 million. A lot of these players ended up losing a lot of money by pledging loyalty to the PGA Tour, only to have the tour turn around and cut a blood money deal with the same people that they excoriated in the past. So uh, I, those players, and this isn't just a feeling among the star players and talking to a mid-level member of the PGA Tour, it, it's pretty apparent that the vast majority of the membership is furious with Jay Monahan. I think he heard that in Tuesday's players meeting at the Canadian Open, and rightfully so. What Jay Monahan did, it's just, it's really an awful look. I mean, for him to embrace the 9-11 families, really use them as a negotiating asset, and then to ditch them when it served his bottom line interest, and, and then cutting this deal with the uh, public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. It's, it's really, uh, I, I just don't know how he lives with himself and how he can explain this, how he can survive. And, and again, we'll see if he's able to do that as this new entity takes over golf. Yeah, I was talking to somebody who is a sports fan, pays a bit of attention to golf, and he said that he wondered if it was solely about the money, um, if it was also about this notion that over the past year, the most 
public display of this fight has really been in the courts, right? It's, it's been this antitrust suit. We've seen articles written about that um, as, as Liv has charged PGA with this anti-competitive behavior against them. And, and this sports fan I was speaking to wondered if this was also just about sort of trying to end that debate and end this sort of, you know, we, we want to be the monopoly. We, we'd rather absorb you than fight you. Is there something more philosophical also to this as, as the PGA wants to maintain sort of top ranking or top tier in terms of a name in golf? Well, I think that's fair. And, and obviously the Justice Department was investigating professional golf and the discovery process and live litigation had to be an ominous prospect uh, for the PJ Tour to face, and they wanted the federal investigators to go away. They wanted these lawsuits to go away, the discovery process, which nobody wants to endure, and they wanted that to go away as well. So certainly that's that's part of this deal without question, but I think reasons one, two, and three are financial, and actually just to, to fund these uh, legal cases over the course of time was going to be a losing proposition for the PJ Tour because the public investment fund they can hemorrhage money forever, billions upon billions. And I think the PJ Tour looked at this as an unwinnable war with Liv and with the Public Investment Fund because they could spend the PJ Tour into oblivion over the coming 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I think Jay Monahan realized that. And he said, you know what? I'm going to cut my losses here and I'm going to make a, a Faustian deal with the public investment fund that I've uh, criticized to the nth degree uh, over the past uh, or the better part of two years. And I'm going to sort of weather the storm and absorb the criticism. And I'm going to accept the fact that everyone or most everyone is going to see me as a hypocrite. And I'm going to try to make the best deal possible for the PGA Tour. And he went ahead and did it. You noted um, the reaction from the 9-11 families, their united group. Um, you know, we've seen article after article for years about our relationship with the Saudis and the, the Saudi kingdom, um, this effort by the crown prince uh, to, I guess, change things in Saudi Arabia. Some politicians have even, you know, backtracked a little bit on where they were. I know we, we've heard President Biden say, you know, the Saudi kingdom is going to be this pariah. Given all of that political background, and I should say pariah over the murder of um, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, given all of that as the background, is it is it fair for Monaghan to be taking all this heat? Were there others likely involved in this deal, given just how how big it is and how much we do know about the Saudi kingdom? Well, it's, it's a good question. I, I think he deserves most of the criticism as the leader of the uh, PGA Tour. And some of the things he said on national TV that he said directly to players about never, ever doing business with these people and then doing business with them without consulting the players, including players who turned down hundreds of millions of dollars to stay loyal to the PGA Tour before Jay Monahan turned around and secretly made a deal with that very entity in Saudi Arabia. So I, I do think, listen, it's ironic, I guess, that uh, this news broke on the same day where the Secretary of State was in Saudi Arabia trying to cut a business deal, effectively, right? So, so many American companies and uh, do business with Saudi interests. And, and so I, I, I don't think this is the end of Saudi's pursuit of American sports entities. I would not be surprised in the coming years if they attempt to, when you look at, they tried to 
buy Formula One for $20 billion. Uh, they tried, they, they own a team in the Premier League in the UK, Newcastle United. Uh, apparently, they made an attempt to buy WWE. So would it so shock me if they purchased a, an interest in an NFL or Major League Baseball or NBA team in the future? No, it wouldn't. I think uh, there are a lot of possibilities out there. I think they're going to be relentless in trying to normalize, in a sense, humanize, in a sense, their regime through sport. And I think that will continue. Finally, you know, we've had discussions about sports in foreign countries before. This isn't new. We've, we've recently heard a lot about the NBA in China, right? There was that big dust up a couple of years ago with the Houston Rockets GM tweeting support for Hong Kong. The Chinese fans of the NBA, which is a huge market, they weren't that happy, as you recall. And then other NBA players tried to sort of defend their Chinese fans, and it kind of got complicated. I, I wonder... Is there any upside in the vein of, of sports, you know, maybe bringing people together or has that ship sailed in, in this day and age? I think there, there, there could be some upside. And if, if uh, regimes are making an earnest attempt to uh, become a kinder, gentler uh, regime, then, then I suppose uh, sport is, is one of many different ways that you could showcase that. And... At the end of the day, I think it's up to the individual sports fan in a case like this. Do you only care about the product and consuming that product and you want the best golfers in the world? You want to watch them competing against each other and you don't really care about these moral issues on the side, then then you're going to be served by an agreement like this. I think each fan of sport has to make his or her own decision as to whether or not these entanglements matter. Or is it just about the sport and the entertainment? And I thought, I always thought in this case that the fans should have been the judge and jurors mm. determining whether or not they cared that these live golfers took all this money to partner with the Saudis. If you cared because of the 9-11 connections, because of the human rights atrocities, then so be it. If you didn't, then you had a right to, to not care as well. And I think that should be the case going forward as we see Saudi interest in sport grow on a global basis. Best-selling author and sports writer Ian O'Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. Meet the American who... Won World War II for America and the Allies. American boat builder Andrew Jackson Higgins built shallow draft boats in New Orleans for Delta oilmen and trappers in the 1930s. His military-grade version wound up fueling America's unstoppable, amphibious attacks across the globe in World War II from Normandy to Iwo Jima. Here's his amazing story. Higgins was born in 1886 in Nebraska, 1,000 miles from the nearest ocean. The Irish-American who was named for President Andrew Jackson became a boat builder. His best-known innovation... The amphibious landing craft that he built in New Orleans transformed seaborne warfare. His company, Higgins Industries, made boats for the bayous. Those boats were capable of navigating shallow waters and running up on land and back into the water. With threats of the war in the late 1930s, the military tapped Higgins to design a similar boat, one that would insert men and equipment into hostile beaches. Higgins' boats were officially known as LCVPs in military parlance, standing for Landcraft Vehicle and Personnel. 
He also built a larger version of the Higgins boat called LCMs, landing craft mechanized. Those were sturdy enough to deliver troops with battle tanks from ship to shore. The Higgins boats powered every American amphibious invasion of World War II, especially on D-Day, June 6, 1944. General MacArthur himself famously splashed out of a Higgins boat onto the Philippines in 1944. I have returned, he declared, two years after his forces in the Philippines were embarrassingly routed and his men killed, imprisoned, and tortured by Japan. The grim but effective utility of the Higgins boat was popularized among the new generation of Americans in the horrific opening scene of the 1998 Tom Hanks war epic, Saving Private Ryan. Andrew Higgins died in New Orleans in 1952, but his legacy did not die with him. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, in a 1964 interview with historian Stephen Ambrose, called Higgins the man who won the war for us. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? The coup is complete at CNN. Chris Licht. Network president, gone after just 15 months. Wow. That didn't take long, now did it? Chris Licht, the wonderkind behind the late show with Stephen Colbert, where he served as the show's showrunner. The guy behind the success, relative success, of Morning Joe on MSNBC was plucked to run an international news organization in 2022 by executives at Discovery, the parent company of CNN. His job was to bring back Republicans and independents to the network who had left in droves. And by droves, we mean when you compare the ratings between early 2021 and the spring of 2022 when Crystal came in, we're talking about an 80 to 90% drop in audience. That's really hard to do. So Lick decided that maybe we should have Donald Trump on for a town hall. He is the Republican frontrunner by something like 30 points nationally after all, and he did receive 74 million votes in the last election, the most by any Republican in history. So it's probably a good idea to put this guy back on our air like we did in 2015, 2016, almost every second of every day. And that's when the dam broke. That was too much for the liberal anchors and producers and reporters over at that network, and the coup was underway. Anderson Cooper literally went on the air and said, I don't blame you if you never watch this network again, unquote. Who says that? This is insane. But then it was the piece in The Atlantic that came out this week, a devastating profile on Chris Licht, where Licht had the audacity to say that the network's COVID coverage was based on fear-mongering in an effort to scare the public and therefore generate more ratings and more clicks. And that was the end. Now, that's not to say that Chris Licht did a great job. He was in over his head from the very beginning. Remember, this is the guy who said, you know what? Who's our lowest rated guy in primetime? Don Lemon? Great. Let's give him another hour of airtime. Put him on in the mornings. Pair him with two people, even though he's been solo for the past 10 years. So that should go great. And sure enough, Lemon was fired within five months after moving to mornings. Whoops. He also never filled the crucial 9 p.m. time slot 
which is essential for any network's success. It took him a year before he finally found a replacement. That is far too long. And you could go down the line in terms of why Chris Licht should have never been in this job in the first place. Amy Antelis now will run the network, at least on an interim basis. She's been with the network since 2012. That's even before Jeff Zucker got there. So this is not a permanent replacement. Either way, CNN is now a rudderless ship. And there's no way to tell if it will ever get back remotely the credibility and the ratings it once had many years ago. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night.